Well, welcome to this, the fourth roundtable live video discussion being hosted by Palestine Deep Dive. And this time with special guests live from New York in the United States and from Exeter in Britain. Uh, and today we're asking a number of questions and we're also obviously hoping to hear from you. But we're going to begin by asking about uh, US Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden shifting gear on Palestine. Is he? What another? Trump victory would mean in November. Uh, and also we're gonna have a look at the latest uh, land grab, uh, the, the new plans to build 7,000 houses in an illegal settler uh, town uh, in the West Bank. And also we're going to try and just try to unravel the swirl of anti-Semitism claims that have uh, mired Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party in the UK. I'm Mark Seddon. I used to be the UN correspondent for Al Jazeera. Uh, I worked for the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and last year worked also for the President of the UN General Assembly, Maria Fernanda Espinosa. Uh, but before uh, further ado, I'd like to introduce our two guests today. And thank you very much for joining us. Ian Williams. Ian is the President of the Foreign Press Association in New York and he's a columnist for the Washington Report on Middle East, Middle East Affairs. He's authored several books, including Deserter, Bush's War on the Military, Families, Veterans, and His Past, and Untold, The Real Story of the United Nations in Peace and War. Uh, he, Ian, of course, claims that he has more columns than the Parthenon, which is something I can attest to he does. We're also joined by Ilan Pape. Uh, Ilan is Professor of History and Director of the European Centre for Palestine Studies at Exeter University in Britain. Uh, he has previously spent over 20 years teaching at the University of Haifa, and he's also the author of more than a dozen books, including 10 Myths About Israel and the Modern Middle East. Thank you both. We, we are having a number of people joining us uh, from across the world today, sending in their questions. I see we've already got people uh, getting in touch, sending in questions from Delhi and in India, from Washington, D.C. in the United States. Uh, we've Chapel Hill, uh, uh, Chapel Hill L NC. I, I'm not North sure. Carolina, Mark. North, North Carolina. Carolina. North Carolina, United States. No so we're getting, we're getting people sending in uh, their questions. And we'll, what we'll do is uh, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be coming over to you. Keep, keep on sending them in as we go through uh, today's uh, today's interview. So thank you very much. And what I want to do is start actually with Ian um, and looking very much at the possibility, the possibility of a Biden presidency. Uh, we heard a couple of weeks ago that uh, he was he was essentially saying that when it came to uh, taking the embassy back out of Jerusalem and putting it in Tel Aviv, he was going to leave it there. Uh, but he now seems to have uh, changed tack a little bit. Um, he seems to be saying that uh, if there is a democratic uh, administration in November, uh, he's, he's urging Israel not to take actions that would uh, disrupt or make a two-state solution impossible. So, I mean, given that there seems to be a bit of backpedaling on what Biden was saying a week or so ago, um, what does this what does this really mean? Does, is this is this progress of sorts? Would you say, Ian? Well, I suppose there is some impingement of reality on the decision making process. 
you know, on the Trump side, it is, didn't those people bring us a big check recently? Let's give them what they want. Uh, in this case, uh, Biden's listening to other factors. There are a lot of pro-Israeli uh, people in the United States who think that the policy that Likud is, is pursuing is disastrous. They see that it's it's a complete disaster for the the two-state solution, you know. And some of us have views that the two-state solution is in itself a bit of a disaster. But it is the vestiges of whatever's left of Oslo and the peace plant. So a lot hinges on it. And, you know, the foreign policy professionals all think that what uh, Netanyahu and Likud is doing is disastrous. The only person in the world who doesn't think it's disastrous pretty much is Donald Trump and the White House. So in there, you know, he's almost on safe ground, except, of course, this is, you know, the traditional third rail of American politics to suggest that anything an Israeli government does is wrong can have big consequences when Sheldon Adelson stops sending checks or even worse, sends checks to your opponents. So, you know, th th there's been this, uh, how should we say, dialogue between reality and the uh, tribalist uh, Adelson clique. But that's... that's uh, well, Coming back that's to this, Ian, on, 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 on the issue of, um, of Biden, uh, could it be the case that uh, Netanyahu and Gantz will take one look at this and say, well, he's saying this. If we continue with our plans to, to annexation in July, he'll accept it, just as he's accepted the Trump decision on the uh, US embassy. Well, consider what you've just quoted him. Basically, he is saying, we'll go, please, pretty please, to Benjamin Netanyahu, don't do this. And Netanyahu will say, we take what you say under advisement, but we're going ahead anyway because otherwise we will have you unseated. That's basically the threat that Netanyahu has offered to other people. That's why Obama waited until the last day of his presidency to support a resolution which effectively summed up longstanding US policy about settlements. So, you know, we're in, we're in a bit of a problem here. The real issue here is, will any US president go up and say, if you do what we tell you not to, then the checks stop, and the military support stops. That's well, the top. I mean, well, coming to you, Ilan, I mean, and we'll get to this because I mean, there has been, there have been one or two developments um, uh, with this uh, all-party group of uh, British parliamentarians that suggesting that just that kind of action. But let's talk about that a bit later. Well, but on, look, even, no, Ilan, um, Ilan, yeah. on the specific question of, uh, of 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 a possibility of a Biden victory, let's just say a, a Biden victory. I mean, do do you think Netanyahu would stood, still push ahead with this, with his plan for annexation, in the hope that Biden will simply uh, accept a fait accompli? Yes, uh, uh, definitely, Mark. I, I think he, 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 uh, this will be the uh, the scenario that will unfold because uh, there's one factor that I want to add to everything that Ian said, and that is the fact that the Likud doesn't have any opposition. Uh, if Biden is elected, he would face a, a unity government in Israel that includes the Gantz party and the Likud party. A very, and uh, they would say to, to Biden, listen, this is not a right-wing government. This is uh, actually um, a, a consensual unity government of Israel that goes, uh, that sort of represents uh, uh, the majority of the Israeli Jewish electorate, and therefore uh, 
if you don't support that, you don't support what Israel as a state, not Israel as a government, wants. And, and I think that this would uh, make sure that uh, whatever Biden would say, he wouldn't do anything uh, practically to uh, stop the annexation and any other unilateral actions that uh, uh, the Netanyahu Gans government would want to take on the ground, uh, both in the West Bank and uh, towards the Gaza Strip. And what would you say, Ilan, to those who make the point that since West Bank, Palestine is occupied, annexation will actually not make a huge amount of difference in reality. Of course, land will be confiscated, but I mean, it, it's, it's a continuing occupation. But the difference it could possibly make is this dawning realization on uh, you know, global establishment, if you like, that this idea of a two-state solution really is a kind of, uh, it, it's, it's, it's hot air, it's in the hot air, it's, it's, it's simply, there's no prospect of it, if, if most of Palestine has been completely occupied. I, I can see that point, but I think there's something here which is beyond uh, a, a death blow to the two-state solution that we should consider. Uh, with the kind of position that the Trump administration has taken, not only uh, uh, within the deal of the century, but already with the decision to move the embassy to Jerusalem, to recognize the Israeli annexation of the Golan Heights and the legitimacy of the, of the settlements. Uh, yes, all these actions, uh, as I said, uh, um, really uh, kill the, the two states solution for once and for all, but they do something else they they really make a mockery out of international law. Uh, and this is being done by the uh, superpower of the world. The US is sending a clear message, which uh, administrations before the Trump administration never did. They may have acted in a way that violated international law, but they never said that international law is not important. This is a direct message to the Palestinians. Don't rely on international law. Uh, because we in the United States do not consider it at all a factor uh, in your fate and in your life. And in this respect, uh, the annexation is not just expropriation of land that, by the way, would be followed by ethnic cleansing of people. This action would really be part of an Israeli-American attempt that is very comes very clear in the uh, deal of the century to totally depoliticize the Palestine question to say there is no anymore a question of Palestinian political rights. There may be some humanitarian issues, there may be an issue of standard of living, which we can improve, but the Palestine issue has been solved. Uh, it's almost like imposing another catastrophe on the Palestinian, this time not through military action, but through trying to wipe them out from international uh, agenda as a political issue. I don't think it will work. It will it will be probably lead to many, many, many more years of conflict. But I think this is the intention. Uh, and I don't think that Biden uh, has enough of a counter plan to stop this from going on. Maybe another candidate of the Democratic Party would have brought in a different agenda, but well, he seems to be retiring from politics, as we know. Yes, that Bernie Sanders was presenting a, a, a different, uh, an alternative. Yeah. But to you, Ian, um, I mean, do you think you know? Given this looks as though this is the real roadmap in many respects, this is what is likely to happen. Um, 
how how does the how does this uh, this kind of defensiveness this um this reluctance for many people who probably do know better uh, to talk about the idea of a secular democratic one state solution how can this begin to get popularized how more uh, significantly perhaps in terms of what might happen at the united nations what ha- what could happen there in terms of the general assembly uh, how how can this issue be pushed uh, forward? Do you think um, dangerously and delicately? Uh, look, I mean, I remember long conversations with Edward Said at the time of the Oslo um, agreements, and he was incandescent, livid, and I thought over the top about his denunciations. And a year later, I met him and said, "Edward, you are entirely right. <laughs> Everything you said is already coming to pass, and it's come to pass." even more so. The one thing the Palestinians had that the Israelis wanted was a degree of international acceptability. And we we should never underestimate that. That is why all the governments in Israel really, really are hurt when the Security Council votes against them. It really counts. I mean, deep in their heart, they are the people of the book. They, They like the law on their side. They'll twist the law, they'll do all sorts of things, but they like the law on their side. And, you know, they have lawyers who work on this all of the time. But they're also working on the public presentation and what's publicly acceptable. And what they've managed to do, which is what's happened in many factors, is they've made it thought crime to consider a one-party state, a a unified Palestinian state, because that rips up the whole idea of, 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 of Oslo. Mm-hmm. Although it's based on a two-party state, that's our peace process. So it's become a shibboleth. Mm. To actually question that means you're questioning the peace process, which means you're against the peace process, which means you're for war. I mean, it's it's the same trap that the they've trapped the Labour Party into over anti-Semitism. Uh, you, 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 you're your own worst enemy because you internalize these conflicts and, and, and you're defensive about them. Now, it's quite clear from many points of view that they don't, only rational solution there. You can't subdivide this. We saw this in Bosnia. I mean, Bosnia is still wrestling on a minor level with a sort of some degree of kind of uh, like we've seen in, in like, like is, is that they're trying to implement in the West Bank and, and in historical Palestine, if I dare say it. Um, so it needs a rational look, but it also needs a degree of guarantors and people prepared to come in. And for years, the Palestinian leadership has accepted the U.S. as a neutral guarantor, despite mm-hmm. people like Edward Said and many others who said, you must be joking. You know, on every occasion, it's quite clear which side the U.S. is on. And the purpose of them there is to provide a ladder for the Palestinians to climb down from the tree that their, that their cooperation has put them onto. I'm, going uh, to, I'm just going to interrupt you there, Ian, because we've got please. a question that's come in. Uh, from uh, Shubda um, in Delhi, uh, and she asks, and I'll start, I'll start with you again, Ian, but she says, Ian and Ilan, what is the current status of APAC in the United States? Do you want to answer that, Ian, to begin with, and then we'll take that to Ilan for any, anything he wishes to say? I actually started researching a book on APAC many years ago, and because I couldn't get any cooperation, out of fairness, we're supposed to get their point of view, they wouldn't give me a candid point of view. So it was almost impossible to get an acceptable manuscript for a publisher. Um, APAC is actually wounded, I think, because it's 
big weapon in the past was it was allegedly bipartisan. It was about support for Israel as a state and a concept. And it's become about uh, Likud. So APAC has managed to alienate many Democrats. The huge majority of American Jews don't believe what APAC is doing. It's become a sort of house, you know, it's become a house puppet for um, Sheldon Adelson and a few Likudnik millionaires uh, and the hard right of the American military establishment, which doesn't represent American Judaism. I think this is why APAC, the one encouraging sign I've seen is that APAC is not the force that it was when I first came to this country 30 years ago. What's, but, you your, know, what's your take on that, Ilan? I, I, I agree. I, I think uh, APAC's uh, uh, power has decreased uh, in its uh, ability to uh, impact American policy and even to intimidate uh, people who are openly critical of American pro-Israeli policy compared to previous year. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I think the uh, e even from an Israeli point of view, the interest has shifted from APAC to the Christian Zionist uh, lobby. Uh, for Israel, this is a far more important uh, agency in uh, impacting American policy than the, the, than the Jewish lobby for the reason that Ian has uh, uh, given us. Uh, I, I think it is also important to mention the generational uh, gap within the American Jewish uh, community. Uh, Israel in particular has a problem of enlisting uh, the young Americans uh, a, a, among the Jewish uh, community. Uh, despite uh, a lot of money and effort that has been going on to such a campaign since 2005, uh, to present Israel as a groovy place, trying to sort of cater for the young uh, American uh, Jews. Um, you, you know, they, they, uh, there's an interesting anecdote here uh, very shortly, but I think it shows you what happens not just to APAC, but to the whole enterprise of trying to turn the American Jews into Israeli uh, uh, ambassadors and ambassadors. Uh, Israel has a, a program called Discovery, by which it brings young American Jews with the hope that they would immigrate to Israel. In previous years, uh, these tours included the West Bank, which turned a lot of these people who uh, participated in these tours into anti-Israeli activists on American uh, campuses. So now all what they do, they take them from the airport, show them Tel Aviv in half an hour, and bring them back to the, to the airplane so that they won't see anything else and still have a very positive view of Israel. Uh, I think that... Um, Yes, Israel has a, a real problem. I'm not sure that the power of Christian Zionism is on decline in America, on the other hand, and that's the bad news of this story. Oh, thank you. Um, now, don't forget, uh, we're taking questions live, so if you've got anything that you'd like to ask our two guests in Ilan, please, please get in touch. Um, I'm just going to follow up now because uh, this past week we saw... Um, uh, another promise to build 7,000 new settler houses in, uh, in Efrat. Um, you know, essentially uh, cocking a snook at, uh, at international law again. But at the same time, we hear that Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo is still planning a visit. Now, of course, in, in recent days, we've seen Vice President Pence appear at a hospital without a face mask and Secretary Pompeo may be about to visit the Middle East at a time when, uh, you know, there is a kind of a global lockdown for quite sensible reasons. But, you know, uh, 
Like, if I can start with you, I mean, what, mm -hmm. why, why is Pompeo going to Israel at this time? Is, is, it to, is it to sign along the dotted line to say, go ahead with the annexation plans? Is that what it's about? I, I think that it will be on the agenda, but I don't think that uh, uh, Israelis and Americans are talking too much about what's going on in the West Bank. There is basically a carte blanche for Israel to do what it wants in the West Bank. Uh, and the Americans, this American administration waits for Israel to ask it whether things are okay or not, not the other way around. No, I think the conversations would be much more about the Iranian presence in, in Syria. Uh, there is a new development that I think the Americans want to discuss. And that development is that Russia has changed its policy in Syria. Russia now also wants to see the Iranian forces uh, being extracted from Syria. And that's why Ru the Russian Air Force has given Israel a totally free space to, to bomb uh, Iranian installation, which Israelis have increased recently uh, under the coronavirus kind of distraction from anything else in the world. Um, mm. And um, I think that would be much more on that, on that level. Uh, but I'm sure they will also talk about this. If at all, they may have some slight disagreements about timings and the way of publicizing the action, but not about the action itself. That's for sure. Uh, there is a green light to create the greater Israel uh, and, uh, with every, and, and all the catastrophic consequences of such an act. And the 7,000 houses that you've mentioned are just the, you know, uh, the starter. Uh, uh, in a very un, uh, untasty meal that they are uh, cooking for us uh, for the next few another, years. Thank you, and I've got another question, and this is from uh, Sam. The first act of Israeli annexation, e.g. Jerusalem, in 1980, and the world yelled and screamed, but then turned a blind eye. Why expect anything different now? If it happens like before, doesn't it make sense for the Palestinians to remain on track and struggle for statehood. Uh, Ian? Well, yes. Um, look, I was at the UN when uh, Nasser al-Kidwa was the UN ambassador, and uh, he was uh, Yasser Arafat's nephew. And the Palestinian mission then started on what I called the long road through the institutions. They realized that with Oslo, they'd given up everything. So institutional, international law was their only defense. So they stated, restated, clarified, and defined all of those resolutions. And it's, a, it's an interesting point. We know the UN is often ineffectual, but no, no sort of uh, annexation has been recognized internationally since pretty much since 1945. The Russians haven't got recognition for Crimea. The no. Indonesians never got East Timor recognized. Morocco still keeps complaining that people don't show Western Sahara as part of Morocco on the map. So, yes, they've got effective power, but they can't get clear title. Mm. And I'm afraid waving tablets around from Moses does not give Likud clear title to the West Bank or to Jerusalem. And the question then is, how do you exploit that? Um, one of the terrible things that's happened over the last few years, this uh, erosion, ideological erosion, is that I, I remember once going to the a German ambassador at the UN and saying, why do you vote? Uh, why, why do you abstain on Middle East resolutions when your clear policy is that what the Israelis are doing is wrong? And he said, well, as long as the British abstain, we can't. 
were German. It's gone worse than that now because they're ideologically committed to supporting Israel. Well, of course, there is a, another another interesting development. Yes. Is, you know, Britain's left the EU, so they won't have that ex, that excuse. But I'm just going to butt in there because there's, there's another question that's come in. This is specifically for Ilan. Um, this this uh, Ilan is from uh, Kathleen um, Christensen. I'm not I'm not quite sure where Kathleen's getting in touch from. But here's Santa Fe, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Santa Fe. <laughs> Welcome, Kathleen. I know her. I know Kathleen. <laughs> trying to ask this question. Are you still working on a one-state solution? And realistically, what do you think of its prospects? And that goes well with uh, Sam's uh, question as, uh, as well. I, I don't think actually that working for a recognition of as a state of Palestine is uh, uh, something which stands in opposite for our need to be prepared for pushing forward the only genuine and possible solution, which is a one-state solution, because it's a long-term project. And uh, yes, we, I am part of a movement which is called the One Democratic State. And what we realized after working two years on the ground in uh, Palestine, in historical Palestine, is that uh, one of our main uh, missions in the next year, for instance, is to try and talk to all those who are officially representing the Palestinians, uh, whether these are the Palestinian members of the Israeli Knesset, the PA, or people who belong to the PLO, the Hamas, and other organization, because their official position is still a two-state position, where I think the Palestinian electorate, if one can call it uh, such a way, uh, is more and more veering towards a, a one-state solution. But this is part of a process by which Palestinian leadership and Palestinian activists and the new young Palestinians who are now involved in politics will have to, and I think they are beginning to do this, to redefine what the liberation of Palestine means in the 21st century. We don't have a clear Palestinian vision for the 21st century. In the last 20 years, we have Palestinians' reactions to Israeli proposals. There is no Palestinian proposal on the line. There should be one. And I think it will be around the one democratic state, not anymore the two-state solution, not tomorrow, but the day after tomorrow. And while, when this will get a legitimacy from an authentic democratic body of representation of the Palestinians, it would be easier for people like me to recruit support for it within the Jewish society, even in Israel, and definitely the international community that already has uh, uh, there is a large support for the one-state solution among the civil society, if not among yeah. political elites, I think will go along with it as well. well. We have to be patient. It won't happen tomorrow. It's an evolutionary process. It's not a revolutionary one, but we are in the midst of it. Maybe people have not noticed it yet. Well, Ilan, that's interesting. And I'll, I'll, come, I'll, I'll take this to Ian, because um, in, in many ways, the, the kind of disruptors, if you like, of uh, the Trump administration of Netanyahu and Gantz and this this extraordinary uh, boldness to just push ahead in spite of uh, global opinion, in spite of what the Europeans might say, for instance, or other other member states of the UN. I mean, where, where does this really leave um, a country like Britain, Ian? I mean, interestingly, people are looking for uh, alternatives, if you like, and we've we've just seen. I mentioned a bit earlier this this letter to the Prime Minister Boris Johnson from 130 odd uh, parliamentarians, former and current, including Chris Patton, who's a former chairman of the British Conservative Party, former governor of Hong Kong, 
these are not what you might call the usual suspects. Uh, and they are, they're, they're quite uh, firm. They've been saying, look, if this annexation uh, proceeds, then we must treat Israel in the same way that we treated Russia over Crimea. So do you think, Ian, that um, this sort of uh, uh, response that's coming from uh, parliamentarians in Britain and elsewhere actually will give Palestinians a degree of hope that there can be an alternative? Well, yes, I just hope it's not false hope. There's always been a considerable uh, parliamentary lobby on behalf of you know, the Arab side. I mean, we have to remember the history. Likud, Netanyahu, the Stern Gang, they were wanted terrorists under British law. They committed acts of terrorism against both British uh, and Jewish and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and Arab citizens of Israel. Uh, this is remembered in the folk memory of the older generation. You know, they did not look at Israel and say, oh, freedom fighters. They said, oh, these are the people who mined bodies of British soldiers they'd left hanging. Um, you know, so there, there, there was that residual part. Then there was also, of course, a lot of the Conservative Party weren't supporting Palestinian rights. They were supporting, at the time, Saudi oil, Saudi arms contracts. But there's always been a considerable bipartisan support. And the let's let I think that the pro-Israeli stance taken by both front benches, it would appear at the moment, is actually very precarious, not well founded within their own parties and within the political classes in Britain, and certainly not amongst the electorate. People there can see. I mean, we have apartheid there. They can see it. They know what it looks like. They can see the arrogance of the Israelis. And then they see an attempt to bulldoze them and basically twist their consciences and say, oh, if you disagree, it's anti-Semitism. And I think people are getting exasperated. I, I do think that the latest uh, outright, uh, basically it was a new Labour plot to destabilize Corbyn. You get you guess what was coming up next, but I, before we do that, um, I'm going to come back to you, uh, Ilan, because we've had another question, uh, and, and that is, um, what has happened to the concept of uh, refuseniks over the past years, both in Israel and the diaspora in the United States? Yes, well, there are two different kind of refuseniks. Of course, when we talk about refuseniks in Israel, we usually talk about the young people who refuse to go to the Israeli army because it's an occupation army. Uh, I don't exactly know who are the refuseniks in America, uh, but um, uh, let, let's say that I, if I understand correctly, these are uh, Israeli or Jews in America who do not toe the uh, line of, of APAC and others. Uh, so, so let me but focus about the Israeli refuseniks. Uh, this is um, a kind of a subculture within Israel that is growing, one has to say. Uh, maybe that's part of the good news that uh, one can bring uh, to this discussion of the last 10 or 15 years. Among young uh, Israeli Jews, uh, without idealizing it and, and, and exaggerating it, but there is a growth of uh, what I call a subculture of both refuseniks and more uh, universalist point of view uh, that does not share uh, the overall indoctrination that young Israelis uh, suckle from uh, cradle to, 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 to the grave. Um, and uh, so, so the, the phenomenon is still there. It grows very slowly. It's, it, it's not a, a mass movement, but it's important that it is there. 
And it's important to notice that uh, it is expanding and due to uh, the internet, due to the ability, well, before coronavirus to travel around, I hope this will uh, return, uh, young Israelis were opened up and so things that they were not able to see from within. Uh, I just can give you one example from one of my uh, boys in uh, high school, well, it was a few years ago, but still, uh, one third of the class uh, found a way not to go to the army, either by stating politically why they're doing it or finding ways of evading uh, the, the service without making bold political uh, statements. But that doesn't matter. It's, it's the kind of thing that the Israeli uh, that brings us some hope, but of course these kinds of movements are not will not be enhanced and empowered unless there is a new vision from the Palestinian side that I think could lead the way for these young people into a different future. They need an end game. They don't need just a, a, a position of what they of rejection. They also need to know what they are struggling for, and I think the Palestinians should lead the way there. Thank you, Ilan. Now, um, I'm going to come to you, uh, Ian, because you kind of were, were, were a step ahead of me there uh, talking about this, the issue of anti-Semitism in the British Labour Party, which, uh, uh, I mean, I just noticed that it was from the airways and the newspapers. It seems to have completely vanished as an issue altogether, which is which got me wondering whether it's because anti-Semitism has vanished or... Mission um, accomplished. Or, 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 or a mission may have been accomplished. But, I mean... Well, I have to say, you know, you and I have been members of the Labour Party for 30, 40 years or whatever. Um, certainly, you know, if you were a racist or an anti-Semite, the Labour Party would be the last organisation you'd ever join or ever be welcomed in. Uh, that's not to say, of course, that uh, there haven't been people like that who've got through the net. How, however, what do you think has really happened here? Has, has this issue of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party been miraculously solved or... Um, or is there something else going on? There's something else going on. No, I mean, it, it was it was clearly a contrived incident. It reminded me very much of the oil for food alleged scandal that the American right used against Kofi Annan. It was invented, it was fogged up, it was echoed by all the amen corners and the, and the cheerleaders in the media, <coughs> who some of them probably genuinely believed it. You know, there is something awful about anti-Semitism. All of us who were brought up on tales of the Holocaust, recoil instinctively, and that's been used to, uh, to to demonize it. But the real point here is why the Israeli strategists are so hot against the BDS is because it delegitimizes what they're doing. They spell can that out BDS. You'll have to spell that out to some people. Sorry, boycotts and uh, and uh, you know the the, the 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 boycotts and sanctions. Now. I've got the parallel of South Africa. I was involved in there as well. The South Africans didn't weren't defeated militarily. I'm talking about the Afrikaners and the whites. They were defeated morally and polit and and, uh, in, and ideologically. They were delegitimized. The whole world reviled them and held them up and said, "What you're doing is immoral and illegal." And they were sanctioned. Their rugby players couldn't go anywhere. They were reviled when they travelled places. And the Israelis, who were very close allies of them, by the way, studied this, and they want to make sure it doesn't happen. They want to be able to carry on with moral and ideological impunity as well, because that affects them at home. So, you know, the for, for the Israeli public, that Ilan has 
sort of rightfully bewailed their uh, acquiescence in all of this, there is no downside for them. They can support the most outrageous military actions in other countries and in Gaza, and in, uh, there is no uh, there, there is no downside. They don't. The checks keep coming. They get welcomed yes. as heroes across the world. The more that they get reviled, the more that the checks stop coming. As soon as impunity comes, then you'll find that a lot of these people will think the purpose of our prime minister is to keep those checks going and to keep the American security blanket. If Netanyahu seriously had a breach with the U.S. president who had the channel, who had longevity, I sincerely think that many Israelis would suddenly become force majeure peaceniks and start saying, "Well, maybe we should consider this. Maybe we should consider that." If, if I can just, if I can just return. To to the issue of the um, not just the UK Labour Party and a particular leader uh, who was obviously uh, not favoured at all by the uh, the Anglo-American uh, establishment, um, but but in general, for, for people who uh, put their head above the parapet and uh, are very critical of uh, the Israeli occupation of Palestinian lands, very critical of Israeli foreign policy. Uh, there does there does seem to in recent years been an attempt to sort of push them back, box them in, close them down by saying, you can't criticise uh, Israel in these in these ways because you're being anti-Semitic, uh, and this would with this would appear to have been partly what has been going on in Britain. So, I mean, do you do you think going back to this question, do you think that? Um, the anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, there, there has obviously been a problem, but but there's also a belief that there's been exaggerated. But do you think that there has been, uh, you know, it's been it's been closed down because Jeremy Corbyn is no longer the leader of the Labour Party? Who are you asking, Mark? What do you think? You, Elan. You're asking me? Oh, yes. me. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> I was, wasn't clear. Um, you're, the, you're, not, you're not a Labour Party member. You can take an outside view, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, first of all, of course, I, I agree with Ian. Uh, the issue was not uh, institutional anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. There is no institutional racism in the in the Labour Party. Uh, a, a, a very damning report was, was published about institutional Islamophobia in the Conservative Party, nobody in the British press found it interesting at all to discuss. Mm -hmm. Nobody brought uh, anyone from the Conservative Party to answer tough questions about this. It, it shows you that there is an exceptionalism here. There is an attempt to, to make it a, a, a real issue where there is no issue at all. So what happened is not that the so-called institutional racism has disappeared from the Labour Party, well, the only thing that happened is that the Labour Party now has a leader who is known to be pro-Israeli. That's the only thing that changed in the Labour Party. And therefore, I think we won't hear anything at all about uh, institutional anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. It really exposes uh, uh, what was behind this whole campaign to delegitimize Jeremy Corbyn. I think also Corbyn himself could have dealt with it a bit better, but that's maybe uh, uh, for a different discussion about this. Yeah. But all in all, I think it was not his fault because really uh, when it started, I remember I said to myself, it wouldn't work. We're talking here about an intelligent British electorate. Uh, such a defamation would not work, but it worked. 
it worked. In, in some sections, it worked uh, uh, because of the power of, of the media uh, to poison the minds of people. And they poisoned the minds of people with disinformation and misinformation about it. Uh, I think the Jewish community did not benefit from this, contrary to what its official leaders think. I think it only undermined the Jewish community. I mean, the campaign that they ran, not the so-called uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, and I think I agree with Ian. Uh, what is true about America is also true, by the way, by the way, about Britain. A lot of young members of the Jewish community uh, do not subscribe to this kind of tactics of timidity, of intimidation, I'm sorry, of intimidation and stifling the debate and so on. But we should take it seriously because uh, it's like moving into the legal aspects. If people, I, can, I just want, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. On that, because, you know, we were talking about APAC earlier, and for people in, uh, in other parts of the world uh, may not be familiar with it, this is a very powerful uh, pro-Israeli lobby organization in the United States. But there are lots of other uh, Jewish organizations that are very progressive and liberal, and uh, J-School might be one of those. I mean, I... I J-Stream. J-Street, I beg your pardon, J-Street. Yeah. Are, are you able to tell us a little bit more about these organizations and um, how influential they are? And if APAC is, as both of you have been saying, essentially uh, caught on the back foot and rather defensive these days, these days is, is J-Street and other groups, are they, are they moving into their territory? Uh, I think they are moving into APAC's uh, territory. They have some uh, success. Uh, they... Uh, uh, they are doing a good job, but I think their problem is uh, uh, I, I don't think that they are. It's a show. It's a long-lived. I don't. I don't predict a long life for J Street. Not because they are bad people or good people. It's because that they are hooked on a kind of a reality that is going to disappear very soon. Namely, that there is a liberal Zionist option for Israel, uh, which in the past was there but has totally disappeared among Israeli, uh, uh, the Israeli electorate. And I think J Street would find themselves a little bit uh, irrelevant because the uh, two options we are facing, because of what happened in the last 10 years, especially what happened in the last five years, we are at the crossroad where Israel could either be a democratic state or an apartheid state. This idea that you can circle uh, 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 the square uh, or uh, whatever the metaphor would be that you can be both a Jewish state and a democratic state may have been relevant for certain junctures in history before. It's a totally irrelevant idea. Israel cannot be both Jewish and democratic. It can be either Jewish or democratic. Uh, J Street is not yet prepared to deal with this historical juncture. And it doesn't matter whether they like it or not. That's a reality. We are there. We are already in 2020. There are only two options for the whole area, which Ian called rightly before historical Palestine. Historical Palestine can be an area ruled by Israel by various means of apartheid, dispossession, and ethnic cleansing, or it can begin to build a different kind of political regime, which is based on egalitarian principles of democracy uh, and recognition of the rights of the Palestinians, that there's more than one model that could be adopted, but definitely this is something that uh, people who are liberal Zionists in America hopefully would eventually accept. They really have to walk only an extra half a mile and be there. But sometimes the last half mile 
is the most difficult one to to walk. I mean, one, one it's interesting what you're saying there, because uh, and, and this is for Ian. One one um, community that we haven't really talked about um, today, uh, who will be very concerned about uh, 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 both plans for annexation and what future state, uh, uh, what you know, uh, what a future uh, Israel Palestine might look like. Uh, would be the um, Orthodox Christian community. I mean, what, Ian, have you any thoughts about um, how Christians in uh, Israel Palestine uh, actually uh, feel about uh, current developments? Well, you know, I, I know many Christians, uh, but they're in an anomalous position. They've been given favored immigration status, Im immigration status. It's easier for a Christian Arab to get a visa for Europe you know, to, to go to Greece or to go to one of the other places. And under heavy economic and social pressure, a lot of them have gone. But in general, I mean, we should remember that uh, Arab nationalism is very much uh, of a, it, it came from the Christian community. People like Butrus Ghali, the, the founder of, um, of the Ba'ath Party, although uh, Saddam was saying retrospectively Islamized him. <laughs> um, but he was a Christian because that 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 is the essence of nationalism as detached from from Islam. So you know the the small communities, but they are not pro-Israeli in my experience. Certainly not the ones I've come to. Their lands are being confiscated as well, and they're being treated as second-class citizens uh, and being discriminated against. You know, I have uh, I have friends from Jerusalem who are who are Christian, and they are treated as, literally as foreigners in their own city, in their own birthplace. They're not allowed in or out. They're harassed every time they come. They're not allowed to expand their homes. They don't get services. So they really get the the brutal edge of of apartheid. It is what it's what what's being practiced, um, and so so that that they that they are that they are on side with the with, they, They'd be very happy with a one state solution, I think, but although they mightn't admit it. I, I actually met one of uh, one of my friends. Uh, from Jerusalem, the first time I went to Palestine, Israel, in 1982, and I looked at all of those settlements, which were already encrusting all of the hillsides and hilltops, and I said, you know, look at all of this. He said, you know, why don't you just tell them that you want that they should stay, occupy, put Israeli flags up, and give you a vote? And at the time, I predicted, I said, you won't be able to see the sky for the dust of the Israeli tanks withdrawing if you make that offer at that time. And I think it was true for that. Mm. But it's too late now. You know, the, the, uh, the tanks have moved on. The, the occupation is a fact. It's an illegal fact. And the penalties should be paid. It can be remedied. But we have to deal with reality of the type that Ilan and others are talking about in the, in, in the one-state solution, regardless of the original legalities. You know, going back to whether Moses wrote the land deeds on his marble tablets or Arthur Balfour was permitted to give away somebody else's country in a sort of on, on the back of a coffee pot, on the back of a menu or whatever he did. Uh, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't stand up in any court of law. I'm, I'm going to interrupt you there. You said we've, we've got a, there's a, a Phyllis Bennis in uh, Washington uh, writes uh, Palestinian Christians and the Karas call from Palestine and the Sabil Center in Jerusalem are doing important work in challenging the discourse popular in the US about Christians somehow being oppressed by Muslims. Um, she says they face the same issues of occupation uh, and apartheid. Um, 
Uh, did you want to say anything that on 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 that, Ilan? Yes, I I, I agree. I, I actually wanted to mention Naim Atik and uh, his uh, uh, Christian theology of 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 resistance within the Palestine context, and, and I'm glad that uh, Phyllis has uh, has mentioned it. Uh, indeed, I, I think that um, there are two different issues that should not be confused. One is that. Uh, uh, under the pressure that Palestinians are, whether they are Israeli citizens or they live in the West Bank, there are few Christians, not a large Christian community in the Gaza Strip, but you know, the Gaza is only 2% of Palestine. But it's, uh, Christians everywhere in historical Palestine uh, who could make it uh, elsewhere on an individual basis were trying to make it, although many of them, especially their younger generation, have also come back. We should say that as well. Um, this is one issue. The second issue is the total failure of the Israeli attempt of the policy of divide and rule between Christians and Muslims that began even before the creation of the State of Israel. The Jewish agency that represented the Jewish community in Palestine before 48 tried to do the same between 1918 and 1948. It never worked. Uh, the Christians and the Muslims in this respect are part of the same uh, uh, national community uh, whose land has been uh, taken and they have been uh, dispossessed. Uh, there is uh, a clear uh, unity of vision and of purpose among these uh, communities. Uh, if, there is, if there are differences of opinion within the Palestinian community about the vision or about the tactics, they are not based on religion. They are based on different ideological and political understandings of the situation. Religion does not play a role in the Palestinian vision of the future or the modes of action that the Palestinians are taking toward changing the uh, oppressive reality under which they are living. Thank you, Lala. We, we've actually got a message uh, for you from uh, Fahed uh, Abu Akal. Uh, he says, I support Dr. Ilan Pape uh, when he talks about a one-state sec one secular solution for both Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs under one constitution. Thank well, you, Fahed. Um, yes, there you are. Support there from Fahed. Um, we're going to turn briefly, if, if I may, um, really to the, to the last issue today, um, which is the one... Um, surrounding the uh, United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Obviously, we've seen extensive cuts. To, for people watching this who don't know, it's a, the, this is the United, Agen United Nations Agency. It's very important uh, for providing basic services, uh, education, and many other basic services to Palestinians. has had its budget substantially cut by the Trump administration. There have been other member states who have stepped up and offered to plug the gap. But this week, I saw that... Um, uh, Elizabeth Campbell, who's UNRWA's director in Washington, um, she's, she said that th this cut in funding uh, by the uh, U.S. had a corrosive impact. 30,000, this is in the time of the pandemic, you know, 30,000 healthcare workers uh, um, are only are going to be paid up until the end of this month. UNRWA's only got enough money for them until the end, end of this month. Uh, and that effectively UNRWA has only secured a third of its annual 1.2 billion budget is the worst financial crisis, she says, since the beginning of operations 70 years ago. And I suppose my question um, to you, first of all, uh, Ilan, we're going to come back to you, Ian, on this, because I know you did uh, some, some very important work around UNRWA and different issues last year. But for, for, the, for what UNRWA is responsible for and does and 
the, the cuts in its budget and at the time of a pandemic, what is it that's going to wake up the world to the terrible um, the terrible issues of destitution, suffering, uh, and a crisis in healthcare there could be, especially in places like Gaza, with uh, with, with this situation. Well, I, I wish I had a, 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 an optimistic, positive answer to to your uh, question. Uh, I mean, when the United Nations in 2018 published a report that predicted that uh, this year, in 2020, or nearly around this year. Uh, 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 Gaza would be unlivable, uh, would have conditions that would make it impossible to provide, and this is before the virus uh, uh, crisis, uh, that uh, the continued Israeli siege and, um, uh, and blockade uh, would uh, uh, create uh, a human catastrophe within the Gaza Strip. Uh, and uh, the world has not uh, responded well and did not respond at all. Uh, actually, neither did the world do much when uh, Israel assaulted the Gaza Strip several times uh, with all its military might. Uh, the only thing we can do, and this, here I'm talking as an activist and not as an academic, as an activist, you cannot look at the past and say the world has not reacted, so what do I do now? You do the same that you have done before, but even more energetically and more enthusiastically. That's the only thing you can do. Uh, uh, it's, there are, uh, you mentioned the BDS, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanction Campaign, uh, which is a very uh, powerful, I think, response to the policies of Israel that create this human catastrophe in Gaza. And the BDS is growing, and its logic is uh, acceptable by many people, despite the attempts that Ian have described to uh, uh, depict it as an anti-Semitic uh, uh, position. Uh, we have to uh, double our effort, triple our efforts, because we are doing the right thing. We haven't found the way of convincing uh, uh, politicians who are at the top to adopt these positions. But we uh, maybe uh, people like uh, uh, Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, despite the failure to be uh, at the top uh, in the right moment, are the harbingers. Uh, are, the, uh, are telling us something about a change that might come even within the political system. Uh, I, I, you know, I've, I've visited American campuses uh, since the 1970s. It's not easy for an Israeli uh, diplomat to visit an American campus nowadays. It's really, they're very, they try to avoid it. Uh, they are, there's, uh, Haaretz published very interesting correspondence between diplomats around the world uh, Israeli diplomats, and they keep complaining about American campuses. They don't want to go there. The, the, the environment is too hostile. Who, If you would have told me that this would happen 20 years ago, I would have asked you, what have you drank or what kind of pill have you swallowed? Uh, I would not believe you that this is possible. We also have to see the half, the, the full uh, half of, of the glass and, and take courage from that uh, and, and realize you're absolutely right. So far, we have not been able, whoever, I'm talking about all of us, Palestinians and those who are in the solidarity movement with the Palestinians. We have not been able to uh, uh, take the world to that moment of truth where it begins to take the right actions to stop that catastrophe. But um, that doesn't mean that we don't know what to do. It just means that probably we have to make it even more effective and stronger. And uh, actually, with this, I will finish. 
the kind of uh, um, kind of reaction that we have seen in Britain and the United States, the attempt to move to the legal, to the legislation side in order to stifle the BDS uh, or any debate on Israel, the move to legislation against criticism on Israel shows you the success of the movement that tries to change public opinion and politics about Israel. Uh, mm. Otherwise, they would not have made the effort. So I think that, yes, it will be more difficult, but um, uh, it's not just a catastrophe that would wake up the people. It's a very profound effort to explain the people the context of these uh, atrocities, the ideology behind these Israeli atrocities. We have to talk about Zionism as an ideology, even if people would tell us, if you talk about Zionism, it means you are anti-Semitism. We have to brush aside all these attempts to prevent the world from having a proper analysis of why Palestinians are the continued victims of war crimes and crimes against humanity that has started in 1948 and have not ended ever since. Yeah, Phyllis Bennis comes back. Uh, she says, uh, Ilan is absolutely right. Conditions on the ground are still worse, but our movements have done amazing work in changing the discourse on Palestine, Israel, enormously in the public, significantly in the media, and now finally it's starting uh, at the policy level. Um, Ian, coming back to you um, on uh, the issue that we've just been talking about to, to begin with, uh, UNRWA, uh, uh, obviously the cuts to UNRWA um, uh, took place, the, the Trump cuts took place before some of the scandals that uh, you uncovered uh, became public knowledge. But do you think that um, in terms of what is needed, certainly in the short term, in supporting Palestinian institutions and basic life for Palestinians, um, UNRWA is the right vehicle now? Or does something need to change? Does something need to change if the global international support for Palestine can be translated into real financial support for the organizations uh, such as, uh, well, that, that, you know, as, such as UNRWA? Well, you know, uh, it's, a, it's almost a trick question. Uh, is UNRWA the right vehicle? Uh, three wheels on our wagon and we keep rolling along. It's the only way. You know, it really is. It's, um, and it, it's got many faults. It needs a root and branch look. Uh, there's a lack of agency for the refugees. It, it's, you know, it, it, to some extent, it's a lady bountiful operation. Uh, we have the donors have far too much power. You know, for example, when the Americans stepped back, then we had the Saudis and others coming in with their own agendas, local governments with their agendas. <clears throat> and UNRWA needs secure and regular funding, and it needs a secure and regular mandate, and it needs to involve the Palestinians in all of this. But it also has this existential problem. It's there to deal with refugees, but the refugees have been there for 70 years. So, yeah, legally refugees, but functionally, to what extent can it make their life better without appearing to be pandering and part of the occupation? You know, it's a horrible dilemma. It often occurs. If, you know, it, it happened in Bosnia, for example, where there were towns where the UN officials were given the choice do you evacuate the people there and thereby condone ethnic cleansing, or do you leave them to be slaughtered by the nationalists when they come? It, 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 it's almost a dilemma. To what extent do you? Can you make life better for the Palestinians, for the refugees, without 
being, you know, in, in, in some way being a, a party to the occupation and the continuation? These are very big questions, and, and UNRWA has never had the leisure to deal with it because, mm -hmm. it, you know, it, it gets these things thrown at it. It was an ad hoc agency anyway. It's a sort of jerry-built agency. There's bits been added on. There's bits been done there. It really could do with a root and branch look to see without in any way compromising, which is what the Israelis and Trump are really attacking, is the core... I'm going to have to I'm going to have to interrupt you because I'm being told that we must sadly draw things to uh, a close. Just a couple of uh, final comments from people. Uh, Heather Formani from uh, Italy. Uh, she says uh, really really helpful discussion today. Thank you very much. Um, Kathleen Christensen says thanks very much to you, uh, Ian Ilya. This has been a truly excellent, very realistic discussion. And to that, I should add my thanks to both Ilan and Ian. Thank you very much Thank indeed. You. Us today. Uh, it has been a great discussion and thank you very much also for the teams organized this behind the, the scenes. Um, and so until next time, uh, from all of us at Palestine Deep Dive, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you.